Welcome to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch, and this is a podcast of conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Ian Burgess, CEO of the Medical Technology Association of Australia, or MTAA, which is the national association representing companies in the medical technology industry of Australia. Ian's also non-executive director at the Asia-Pacific Medical Technology Association, or APACMED, which is the only association to provide a unifying voice for the medical technology industry in Asia-Pacific. As well, Ian's a non-executive director and vice chair at Red Nose Australia, a high-profile and well-respected national not-for-profit organisation with a highly successful history in health promotion, bereavement support, advocacy and research. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? G'day, Pete. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for joining. There's going to be a lot of interesting areas to cover when it comes to medical technology and what's happening in the industry and a lot of other broader topics too. So thank you for making the time. Let's get stuck into it then. Tell us about yourself first, Ian. What's your background? As you outlined, I'm CEO of MTAA, Vice Chair of Red Nose. I'm also on the board of APAC Med. I've been in the health sector CEO roles for around 13 years now in associations and also um, I was in a private equity-backed business at one stage as well. My passion is health and making a difference and being aligned with the fundamental purpose of the organisation and industry that I work for and with. Love it. Excellent. And tell us a bit more about the association then, MTAA. Who's that for and what do you offer? So MTAA represents manufacturers and suppliers of medtech, medical technology, used in diagnosis, prevention, treatment and management of disease and disability. There's a broad range of medical technology and that diversity is getting greater every day. And products range from basic items such as syringes and wound dressings to high-tech implanted devices like pacemakers, hip and knee implants, and also um, products like surgical fit-outs, hospital equipment, and diagnostic imaging and MRI machines. So it's an enormously diverse industry. Our members distribute the majority of the non-pharmaceutical products used in the diagnosis and treatment of disease and disability in Australia. And back to the fundamental purpose, the fundamental purpose of our industry is to save lives, extend lives, and provide patients a better quality of life than otherwise would be the case. So that's our industry's purpose. Then MTAA's fundamental purpose is to champion medical technology for a healthier Australia so that medtech is valued as a key driver of a healthier Australia. Our membership is quite diverse, and that reflects the diversity of the industry. It ranges from the largest health company in the world, the largest medical device company in the world, through to Australian-based companies, SMEs, startups. With one of the directors on our board runs a startup from her home just around the corner from our offices in North Sydney. So it's an enormously diverse membership device, again, reflecting that diverse industry. As an industry association, we represent our industry to governments, media, and key stakeholders in the health system. And our main areas of focus are around policy and regulatory reforms to ensure that we have a sustainable and strong medtech industry in Australia. And this includes improving the speed and access and cost of bringing devices to the Australian market and also the reimbursement mechanisms for medtech in Australia, and then the broader health and industry policy issues. Some interesting topics there, and particularly evolving, they're always evolving, but this year in particular, no doubt, there's been a lot of involvement from industry bodies in helping organisations across healthcare 
health tech, med tech, every other area in terms of advocacy and also interpretation of policy, but also communicating back up in terms of need. Just to go back one a little bit though, not to get into semantics, but hopefully to help understand where the MTAA fits in, how the association fits in. How do you differentiate between say, your traditional med tech as well as then you've got your health tech or digital health and all those different areas? How do you go about putting those in buckets? Yeah, that's a great question. And I mentioned the diversity of our industry and our membership and also the lines between medtech and health tech and medicines becoming increasingly blurred. Digital health is already playing and will play an increasingly important role for medtech and our health system. So more and more devices will be digitally connected. More and more devices will have a digital component. And we already have software as a medical device as defined by the TGA. So it's a rapidly evolving and changing landscape. Those what were perhaps clear delineations are no longer the case. And it's interesting too, I'm finding when I'm speaking to those out in the field, not just those using the technologies, but even those representing the companies, perhaps selling the technology or supporting it. It used to be a while ago that you were very much a med tech person or a software person and those lines never shall meet. But these days, both converge with each other. The middle bit in the Venn diagram is getting bigger. And I guess that's the way it's evolving. Yeah, great way to put it, that middle bit in the Venn diagram getting bigger, and it absolutely is. And it means that the industry is innovating, our products are innovating, our devices are innovating, healthcare is innovating based on that digital delivery and the potential impact that has on healthcare, but also empowering patients, putting patients at the centre of healthcare, and coupled with data and access to data, that's the big transformation that is taking place in our health system and will only accelerate as we go forward. And what about this year, COVID and 2020 in general, everyone's needed to adapt and evolve and respond. How has the medical device and technology industry responded to COVID-19 and what's been the impact? Yeah, it's been a huge impact, firstly, obviously on Australia, on our health system, but particularly on the medtech industry. And as our health system stepped up to meet the challenges of COVID-19, Australia was effectively on a war footing and the medtech industry was on the front line, making sure we had the equipments and the medical devices to diagnose patients, treat people and support them through our hospital system so that they can recover and get back to healthy lives again. So our industry performed a significant leadership role in coordinating the supply of those essential medical devices and working with government to meet the challenges of COVID. We stepped in to assist government in securing supplies of ventilators, testing kits, PPE, and also the broader ICU equipment. And we established industry working groups that brought together all the relevant companies, including some were non-members of MTAA, and also government and other key stakeholders. It was actually quite inspiring. We had companies that would normally be fierce competitors sitting around the virtual table together, uniting, sharing resources, sharing information, time and effort, all just to ensure that Australia was as best placed as we could be to meet the challenge and make sure we had those devices and equipment, we had the necessary supplies. So it was an extraordinary response. More than 80% of our medical devices in Australia are imported. So it was critical that we're able to quantify existing supply through that global supply chain. So firstly, we had to know what we were able to get, secure that supply, make sure we could maintain it, and then uh, also look for opportunities to increase and get additional supply through that global supply chain. And we successfully did that through those working groups that I mentioned. 
we were able to get up to the 7,500 ventilators that the government had said it needed, testing kits and PPE, and also ICU beds. That was achieved firstly through that global supply chain, but then also through ramping up Australian manufacturing, and that was both existing manufacturing and also new manufacturing. A lot of moving parts there, and it reminds me of the critical nature of I guess the industry and the reliance that the healthcare industry has on the providers of the stuff that's required and the reliance that we have in Australia or on the rest of the world prior to this in terms of importing things and, and when importing is difficult and just generally moving things around the country is either not available or really hard to do, then that challenge must have intensified. Another thing I would expect to be particularly challenging and would impact the medical technology industry in Australia would be around clinical trials, everything ramping up now in terms of the requirement for clinical trials, obviously for COVID, but for everything that's happening as well, generally. Have you seen any impact of COVID on clinical trials and how that's impacted the industry? Yeah, COVID-19 certainly initially had a, a substantial impact on the clinical trials sector. Many trials were delayed or placed on hold. That has been alleviated as we've been, touch wood, successful in keeping the infection rates low in Australia, notwithstanding the Victorian second wave. So we have seen some return to the clinical trials activity in Australia. MTAA, we collaborate closely with other associations and organisations in the clinical trial space, including Ausbiotech and Medicines Australia. We're part of a, an ongoing research and development task force that actively promotes the clinical trials sector in Australia. So we were working closely through that group as COVID-19 started to impact. We released a joint position statement early on, identifying measures to assist the local clinical trials sector to continue and to weather the storm. And that provided guidance on how and why clinical trials could continue to remain open through the pandemic. So collaboration was a big factor there in terms of being able to alleviate the impact on the clinical trial sector. And we're also collaborating in terms of ongoing reform of clinical trials. We've welcomed the Federal Minister Greg Hunt's announcements in recent times in terms of improving the governance processes around clinical trials approvals, improving coordination between states and having a one-stop shop essentially for Australia. There's a number of substantial reforms that can be implemented to further progress that ongoing improvement in clinical trials, but also the recovery from COVID-19. But that collaboration piece is such a fundamental part of our response as a health sector and also as our industry to COVID-19. And it really was coming back to what I was saying before around that collaboration within industry, including with competitors, but collaboration between industry and government, collaboration with other stakeholders. Really, without that, we wouldn't have been as successful as we have been in Australia. From the medtech point of view, that was a, an industry-led collaboration model. And that has been recognised in other countries and globally as one of the best responses globally in securing that supply of essential medical equipment. Some companies were focused on ramping up supply of that essential equipment that I mentioned before, the ventilators, testing kits, PPE. But at the same time, a large part of our industry has been financially hammered. So many companies face significant financial stress due to the cutbacks in elective surgery, which were rightly implemented by the government to ensure that our health system had the capacity to meet what were envisaged at that stage, the numbers that we were facing around infection rates. So that resulted in a substantial reduction in demand for a lot of medtech with some companies experiencing reductions in revenue of up to 50% and even in some cases 90%. Elective surgery restrictions have eased and we've seen a gradual ramp up in elective surgery. 
again, notwithstanding the setbacks of the second wave in Victoria, which is now fortunately under control. But companies have been impacted by that reduction in revenue and also at the same time face significant increases in costs. We've had costs such as freight costs, air freight costs have increased by 500% up to 800%. And those cost pressures, they're going to continue for some time until we get back to whatever normal looks like in terms of our international air freight, which a large part of the medtech supply chain is dependent on. Those cost pressures are going to continue for our industry for quite some time. We've also seen operational costs increase due to the COVID-19 response that operationally as a business uh, our industry has had to undertake. And that's included split shifts, for example, to ensure that manufacturing and logistical centres are minimising risks. But split shifts are inherently less efficient and therefore more costly. And at the same time, we've got that pressure on revenue. Pricing is generally locked in for contracts for supply. Companies haven't been able to move the pricing of products with all of these financial pressures that they face. A lot of challenges there. And ones you would think you can innovate out of some of them or, you know, an opportunity presents and you can say, hey, look, we can do things differently. But some of them, sometimes things like freight and some things you can't move and that's just a challenge that you need to face. Looking then from the opportunity side, though, what are the opportunities that present out of this and that are ahead for medtech companies now? You mentioned that word innovation, which is underpins our industry. Our industry is all about innovation. Innovation to save patients' lives, extend lives and provide a better quality of life. While some of those challenges were, um, in a sense, unavoidable, innovation was still a factor in terms of the COVID-19 response. So operationally, as did many businesses in our economy, we had to innovate. We had to change the way that we went around conducting business, working from home, moving to virtual meetings. I've mentioned the split shifts, which added cost, but were a necessary response as well. But also even just the provision of technical support services. In many cases, company representatives offer extensive support to clinicians, nurses, and surgeons, and that can be prior to an operation, during an operation, and also post-operation. It could be for the life of the patient, depending on the device, such as a pacemaker. So medtech companies had to innovate in terms of how they supply that essential support within the COVID-19 environment. And in some cases, they're able to do that remotely, might still have a company representative in a hospital, but not actually in the operating theatre and providing support prior to the operation in terms of helping set up the kit and then support during the operation for the nursing staff uh, through an iPad, for example. So there's innovation through conducting business and providing the support that is an essential part of, of MedTech. Innovation in terms of product responses, we had um, Grey Innovation, which is a small Melbourne-based medtech company with federal government and Victorian support and uh, forming a consortium with other key stakeholders. It's successfully been able to commit to building 2,000 ventilators and they started rolling off the production line probably just over a month ago now. So a great story in terms of collaboration again, collaboration and innovation, a small Australian company that actually used the design specs of a large multinational to manufacture that ventilator. I love those examples of when the capability or the gravitas of really large organisations or parties bigger than their innovation can be. Just by the nature of them being so big means they can't innovate or they can't move quickly for a number of reasons. But then bringing that together with, say, innovative, fast-moving company to be able to respond quickly, when those two combine, that's usually a pretty powerful response. 
It can be, and leveraging that collaboration, as you say, between a large company and smaller companies. And another great example is Stryker, probably one of the largest orthopedic firms in the world. And they developed a rapid response ICU bed. And this was innovation in terms of the device itself, which was a low cost rapid response ICU bed, but also the manufacturing process. So in Australia, Stryker is using four small Australian manufacturers who are not traditional medtech manufacturers, but they are now producing this bed and components of it. And uh, also the way that it's then assembled on site is another part of the innovation piece around both design, manufacturing and delivery. And that point you raised before, I forget about that. I come from more of the software background within healthcare, so I'm so used to providing support virtually for a software platform. Only very rarely someone needs to physically go out to a, a clinic or a hospital to provide support. And if you are doing that as a software company, you feel like you're almost over-servicing. But in the medical technology space, some of these depends on what you're talking about, but you know, there's moving bits and there's things that need to be replaced. And sometimes they're overly complex that it's just not expected that a clinician or anyone in the hospital is going to handle them. So, yeah, if not for COVID, then it would have been almost seen as a, I guess, like every other industry, like we just wouldn't have otherwise thought to have done these things remotely, at least in this time frame. But when you're forced to do that, then it can then bring out some new opportunities, which we might see be used in some way ongoing. Yeah. And the opportunity word that you used again, it, that's exactly what's perversely COVID has created an opportunity and an accelerated take-up of telehealth, an accelerated take-up of remote monitoring and the opportunities that presents for healthcare delivery that can potentially provide better outcomes, that can potentially provide better care from a patient's point of view and can potentially be more cost-effective as well. There's various metrics around the number of telehealth consultations that have exponentially increased during COVID-19. It's that acceleration in terms of the use of technology and the willingness of both patients and healthcare providers to utilise technology, which is really, a, uh, as I say, a perverse positive of COVID-19. Interesting. To broaden things out a little bit more, aside from COVID, what are the other areas you're seeing that are developing within healthcare more broadly that have the potential to change the landscape? Well, I think in terms of the governments, federal governments and state governments' priorities as they focus on, firstly, a preparedness for a future pandemic and secondly, an economic recovery from the current crisis, governments are increasingly looking at sovereign manufacturing capability and increasingly looking at reviewing stockpiles of that essential critical medical equipment. So the sovereign manufacturing capability represents, again, an opportunity and certainly a key area of focus for governments and really all stakeholders as we look to reforms of the health system and also the broader economic environment and the regulatory frameworks. And the government has recently announced its modern manufacturing strategy, and we welcome that. That's a $1.5 billion commitment to ensuring Australian manufacturing, including medtech, can be a, a global leader. That's really important given that probably Probably more than half of Australian medtech device companies have grown from local startups. So despite the fact we import more than 80%, the number of our companies, more than half their genesis was from local startups. So shoring up that Australian medtech innovation and the Australian manufacturing is important. I've mentioned the budget. There were a couple of other budget measures just announced coming back to the, the home and community-based care reforms. So important initiatives there that were announced around general rehab services, including orthopaedics and the home and community-based care was also a key part of MTAA's pre-budget submissions. And we're very pleased to see that being taken up. 
and again, an ongoing commitment to uh, extending telehealth services. So there's broader ensuring that Australia operating within a globally competitive environment, that we have the right economic environments, that we have the right regulatory frameworks and also the right reimbursement frameworks for medical technology in terms of how they're being paid and reimbursed both in our public system and our private system. So that'll be the key areas of focus moving forward. And we have a very high quality health system in Australia and we have a high quality medtech sector. And there's a number of key attributes that we have for potential growth and scaling our industry locally in Australia. And that includes that high quality health system. We have a very skilled workforce. It includes our high quality clinical trials system in Australia and our R&D environments. So there's a number of those, if you like, prerequisites for success, key success factors. And the opportunities are there with the right levers and the right government policies and initiatives and assistance to really scale that up. And to be part of that globally competitive environment, we have to ensure that those economic initiatives and the regulatory framework are globally competitive as well. There are existing challenges for medtech in Australia, particularly around to ensuring that Australians have access to the latest and best medical devices in the private market. We do run the risk of this being increasingly hampered by large corporate insurers being focused, essentially being focused more on maintaining their profits rather than maintaining patients' access to life-saving and life-changing technology. So the context there is that an increasing number of Australians are questioning the value of private health insurance. And unfortunately, the response we've seen from private health insurers hasn't been effective and hasn't been addressing the value proposition of what they're offering their patients. And also has essentially focused on maintaining profits whilst increasing premiums each year, continually at at least twice the rate of inflation. For the medtech industry, insurers have been blaming medical devices for rising premiums. Now, medtech only accounts for less than 10% of insurers' total payments to their insured patients, less than 10%. And that 10% has declined. There have been significant reductions in the amount that insurers pay for medical devices. Those reductions have been, for example, for a uh, device such as a pacemaker that now costs 38% less than it did a few years ago, three years ago. The most commonly used hip implant now costs 30% less. And also with the cutback in elective surgeries during the COVID pandemic, insurers have experienced windfall gains because of that. They're not paying out as much as they would in terms of not as much as they would, it's, it's actually $1.3, $1.4 billion less than they would. There's a number of challenges in terms of putting in place, firstly, proper reform of our private health insurance system that recognises the value of choice, that recognises the importance of patients being able to choose their hospital, choose their doctor, and for their treating clinician to determine what is the appropriate treatment for their patients, including the choice of device. And unfortunately, we're seeing insurers increasingly call for measures that restrict choice, restrict clinician decision-making, and run the risk of moving us towards a managed care system, as some call an Americanized system. It's funny, I don't know enough about that whole, I'm not involved in the detail of that, that ongoing challenge that 
the private health insurance is put out. I, I obviously know about the broader issue as a policy holder myself. And I see within the industry, the reasons that are put forward by private health insurance about the reason for rising premiums. I agree with you in that it being somewhat unreasonable to solely put that on the shoulders of med tech, given that with innovation comes cost saving and reduction and expectation that costs would reduce. And, and that's across any technology rather than it being exponentially increasing in terms of the cost. So it's an interesting one that I, we could spend another couple of hours exploring, but I think we're going to need to wrap it up in a sec. Just lastly then though, Ian, back to the association, the MTAA, what's the MTAA doing over the next three to six to 12 months to support members and what's the focus? You talked a little bit about what the focus on the future brings, but specifically for this association, what's next? The focus for us is around government focus on reform in the, in the post-COVID recovery environment and around the manufacturing sovereign capability, but also the sustainability and growth of the total medtech sector and ensuring that we protect and maintain our high-quality global supply chain and ramp up our local manufacturing capability at the same time. So it's all around growth. It's all around sustainability. It's about innovation. There's ongoing reforms in terms of TGA, which is the Therapeutic Goods Administration, and they are aligning with European regulatory frameworks. They have been delayed due to COVID-19, but there's various measures there that are, are ongoing reforms that we're actively engaged with governments around. The private health insurance reform is an important focus for us, including reform of the medical devices piece of that, which, uh, as you say, is potentially another hour conversation that we can have. But <laughs> that is a big focus for us, as is state procurement processes. And we're working with a number of states around improvements in state procurement to um, have a more efficient system that can potentially move us towards recognising value and not just simply trying to buy a widget at the lowest possible cost and considering that value is something additional thrown in on top, which is an oversimplistic summary of how, how some procurement may currently take place. But it's recognising that medical technology adds value, as you say, can save costs as well. And it's recognising that with medical technology, it's not just the device, it comes with service, it comes with education, it comes with training, it comes with support. And the challenge really in the longer term for our health system is to move towards more of a value-based healthcare system where we have a delivery of healthcare, we have a, a payment mechanism that is more integrated across the healthcare journey for a patient and that is recognising outcomes and outcomes that are meaningful to patients and is paying for technology based on those outcomes. But that's again, that's another one hour conversation on top of the private health insurance conversation in terms of longer reform. There's some really meaty topics in there and some really important ones to cover and that's going to be keeping the association and the industry busy for some time, no doubt. But I wish you and the team all the best with your endeavours to do that, Ian. I'll put some details for the MTAA and anything else that you do in the show notes of this episode for people to check out if they like. Thank you so much for your time. Great to join you, Pete, and enjoy the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Health Tech. My name is Peter Birch. Make sure you go check out our website for all our resources, including this podcast and the largest directory of technology solutions available to Australian healthcare practitioners today. Until next time, I'm out of here.